You are listening to a podcast from Providence Reformed Baptist Church. If you would like to listen to more of our sermons, please visit our website at providencewi.org. And yet, here we end the same way as Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, the effects of the sin bearer rising from the dead. And as, as we have entered into what a lot of traditions call Lent, and we in our minds begin preparing for the time when we celebrate actively the resurrection of the Lord, here we have in our text uh, the appearance of Jesus to the disciples up north instead of down in Jerusalem. John 21 beginning at verse one. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Canaan of Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat and that night they caught Nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, Children, you do not have any fish, do you? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. So they cast. And then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. So when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. We're going to pray together and then uh, we'll have a seat and study this text. Let's pray. So our Father, we so much need you to meet with us here. We understand the excitement of your physical presence with the apostles and yet a a sweetness in Jesus' words that it was to their advantage that he go away. We realize that the presence of your spirit is uh, very real to your own and there's a special presence we experience as he fills us, as he controls us, as he emboldens us, as he uh, quickens our understanding, enlivens our understanding of your word, not just the academic parts, but we see how great you are, how good you are. So do that in us this day as we meet with you. In your son's name, amen. Please be seated. So we are going to be in John chapter 21, the first 14 verses today. What what I would like you to do before we jump into that text I would like you to go to the book of Revelation, 
John wrote this as well, moved along by the Holy Spirit. And in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, uh, actually chapters 2 and 3, there are seven letters. Jesus is speaking directly to churches. That doesn't make these sections more inspired than the rest of the Bible. But as John records the words the Lord Jesus gave him to pass on to the churches, we're looking first at the church of Ephesus. And I'll I'll explain why I'm doing this. Partially because this was a revelation from John to the church at Ephesus, where John most likely ended his life, where Mary, the mother of Jesus, most likely ended her life. I want us just to pay attention to these words before we jump into our study in John. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and that you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. So as we're going to this text, I'm going to start simply by reminding you of what a lot of us have seen, some of it in our own households, some of it in our church through the years, some of it in, in friends that we grew up with. And I'm not saying that it's worse now than it ever was. It just seems to me at this point in time that there are a lot of people in my experience in the last few years who have claimed faith in Christ in their childhood or even uh, maybe later as an adult who have said, I am walking away. This became a discussion among uh, some of us at the faculty mealtime. We talk about a lot of interesting things beyond just school. But uh, sharing some of the heartaches of watching people walk away from the faith. Uh, Dr. Jim Burse, whose ministry we we support here, uh, said he he used to travel in a group and they, they would preach and do music all over the United States. And his friend Dan had written all of, they had like 14 songs in the repertoire. His friend Dan had uh, written these songs uh, of a love for Jesus and communicating who he is and songs of adoration. And Dan called Jim and just said, I'm done. I am done. I am not a Christian. I am walking away. Uh, Some of you might have heard of Dan because he's the head of the Freedom From Religion Foundation in Madison, and so we hear more of him now, perhaps, than any of us did when he was a pastor. That is is so difficult to see someone who made a a claim to faith to, to completely turn around. And then there are those who who seem to be teetering on the edge. You can see examples of that in scripture. You can see examples of out-and-out rebellion in scripture. I'm not suggesting that the disciples and what they're doing were walking away from Jesus. But I am saying there are times, and I'm guessing you've been there, when you start to wonder, is, is this real or not? And where even those 
sorrows like sea billows roll. We sang that song. What do billows do? They just keep coming. They just keep hitting and they keep hitting and they keep hitting. And you might even say, has this all been a lie? Is this real? You look at John the Baptist. Bold as could be for Jesus. Jesus said there's none greater in the kingdom. And yet here's John in his weakest point when he's wasting away in prison, getting ready to lose his head. He probably didn't know that part. But he sends word to Jesus, are you the coming one or should we look for another? Take it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. How many of us in our pride through our lives have said, Adam and Eve were so stupid. I never would have taken that fruit. And yet they did. You look at at Israel, this national picture of what God has done for individuals and, and in his nation, uh, he's, he's shown himself, he's revealed himself, he's brought down their enemies with a great judgment, rescued them, they're, Peter says, baptized into Moses, they're identified going through the sea, the judgment on the outside, the protected people of God on the inside, And then they get in the wilderness and they do what? They heard the audible voice of God speaking the Ten Commandments and one of the first things they did was miss their leader and ask Aaron to make make them an image that they could worship when God had just said, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make unto yourself a graven image. Why? Why would they do that? And see, you can probably, if we just took some time and, and had question and answer, you look through the scriptures and you see all of these people who walked away. This, though, is not about walking away. This is about the one who is always there. The age-old illustration that I heard of a child of a, a husband and wife who were just had become old married folks, and, and the, the wife is saying to her husband, we never sit by each other in the car like we used to. And the one response is, well, it's because we have bucket seats now. But the other response would be, Who moved? Who moved? I'm, I'm right here still. This is the picture that we need to get about the Lord Jesus. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve hid in their shame that they had first experienced. The, the conscience that God put in them at creation now is awakened and they're hiding. And who goes looking for them? In the parable of the prodigal son, even though it's a parable, the character of God is showing up not just in going after the one who ran away, but the one who ran away in his heart, the older son, the compliant boy, should be called the parable of the prodigal sons. But look what the father's doing. He's there, he's speaking to his own. He hasn't moved. And if you were at one of those teetering places, this is a wonderful text of scripture for you to see. Yes, Jesus had spoken to the disciples, and I'll show that in a moment, But you know what Peter did. Judas irretrievably walked away, but Peter denied the Lord, disowned Jesus three times, and now the Lord appeared to them a number of times. John tells us here's the the third time, and here's how he showed himself to them. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, or the Sea of Galilee, And he manifested or he showed himself in this way. I want you to remember that Jesus had told the disciples ahead of time 
that he was going to go to Galilee. Uh, this is one of those things that's like, oh, he did say that. Before he went to the cross, he said, I'm going to rise again the third day. And after I've been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. This was not new information. In fact, after the resurrection, he instructed the women who saw him, do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to leave for Galilee and there they will see me. And it makes sense that the Lord would appear in the region that served really as the base of his earthly ministry. Capernaum became home for him. And that's probably where we're finding him here. Apparently more than seven uh, of this text made their way north to Galilee because Matthew 28, 16 says that 11 of them actually went. They just weren't all fishing to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And so John gives us this account, and he lists them. Simon Peter and Thomas, called Didymus, that's the twin. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, so they're in Galilee. This is, this is home, probably Capernaum, because they had all of their fishing equipment located there. They had grown up... Uh, Peter and Andrew, that is, had grown up in Bethsaida. Uh, their home was now in Capernaum. All the stuff is there, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. We'll talk about that in a minute. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat, and that night caught nothing. So John either names or alludes to seven here. He doesn't call himself by name, but we already know that the sons of Zebedee were John, who wrote this, and his brother James. Jesus had called them sons of thunder at one point, which could have been a reference to them or to their dad. Uh, Peter is there. Thomas, and his nickname was Twin, and we really don't know other than he probably had a twin brother or a twin sister. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee James and John, and then it says there were two others. And so this is Steve's guess that one of the two others was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, just because he's in the fishing business with his brother. It is possible that a few days have passed, maybe weeks. You try and put the gospel accounts together. That part is not necessarily the most important observation to make here. But we're talking about these disciples, we'll say the 11, even though seven of them are out doing the fishing, probably three in one boat and four in the other. Lacking specific instruction from the Lord, Peter suggested that they go fishing. And one question that probably ought to come up here, because I have heard a number of sermons on this and have read a number of accounts, was Peter being unfaithful to his call from Jesus, because you remember when Jesus first called them away from their fishing, he said, from now on, you're going to catch men. You learned that song when you were a little kid, right? If you grew up in church, da, 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 da. Yeah, ask me afterwards, I'll sing it to you. We don't have time. But you know the call of Jesus that is so well known. So is Peter compromising? He's saying, I've had it with this preaching thing. And I'll say, I'm not sure about that. But I do think that Peter was doing more than recreational fishing here. Okay, that's the first observation. How do we know that? 
Well, they took, they got their nets and their old boat. They, seven of them went out. This is intentional fishing. This is, this is not just standing on the shoreline casting and see if you can grab something. They went out intentionally with, with good nets and we know they were good nets because they, I mean, they are in business and they are out there and you know the end of the story because I already read it, but let's, let's observe this a little more. The others followed Peter. He's, he's the one who has emerged as the leader of the group anyway. I do not think Peter was violating the call of Jesus to catch men. I do believe in looking at the text and it, it helps us to make these observations. I, I do believe Jesus was about to throw some shade on Peter's vocation. Not that it was bad to catch fish, but, but Peter was missing something about the presence of Jesus and about what he needed. I don't know that he was even saying, I'm giving up, I'm discouraged, we haven't seen Jesus for a while. I do think that the Lord Jesus is giving instruction as he always did. So James and John were expert fishermen, and we don't know about Nathaniel and the other three, but a full night of labor had yielded nothing but discouragement. And I think this is a lesson the Lord is going to teach them. Not, you shouldn't fish anymore. You should never bring in any income outside of what you're bringing in as an apostle. But they fished all night long. And, and this was one of those businesses where if, if you went out fishing and this is your livelihood, you're not coming back until you have something to sell. This is more than bringing back food for the family. These were not subsistence fishermen. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So at sunrise, and there was an earlier sunrise that had yielded no fish, that had found some of the same disciples washing their nets, and just to keep things moving, you can go to Luke 5 if you want, but I'm going to project it on the screen for those of you who are in the room. The beginning of Luke chapter 5 is when Jesus is calling the 12 to himself. And Luke tells us it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, so Tiberias, Gennesaret, uh, Galilee, same lake. He saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fish out of them and were washing their nets, okay? Some of these same guys, and they took care of their nets because this was their livelihood. If you've ever worked in an automotive shop where, where guys polish their tools more than they polish their own car, more than they bathe themselves, you realize these are people who knew their livelihood depended on keeping these things in good shape and in order. And that's what they were doing. And he got into one of the boats which was Simon's, that's Peter, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. So here's an instance where they finally just said, we're giving up. We worked hard all night and caught nothing, but... I will do as you say. He called him master. He had probably heard him preach, maybe in the synagogue in, in Capernaum. Maybe he had been hearing him preach while he's cleaning his nets. So he knew, he knew that he was a rabbi. Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. And when they had done this, 
They enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both of the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Just pause and look at that. Your presence makes me uncomfortable. You can see to the bottom of this lake when we caught nothing and we're professionals. If you can see to the bottom of this lake, you can see right through me. That's comforting to you. Before we get to application at the end, if you are at that point or could easily be brought to this point where you say, I'm... I am just not sure. I'm discouraged. I just don't know anything anymore. I'm confused. Thinking that confusion is a reason to walk away from truth and to walk away from the faith. I want you to go back to some of the things you know for sure. Peter found something out about Jesus. It isn't about your doubts. You may have some tremendous arguments against Christian orthodoxy. You just think you've got the answer. There's so many things that just don't make sense to you. But then you go back to the one who is truth, who is life, and Peter is in his presence. When you're struggling, you go back to what you know for sure. What do you know for sure? Well, what you know for sure right here is this is the omniscient creator of the universe. This is the powerful one who sees, who knows, who is. There's nowhere he's not, we'll put it that way. And when Peter realized where he was, he fell down at Jesus' feet. Now that, by the way, we realize now that doesn't mean that Peter would ever never do something foolish again, right? This isn't some intellectual awakening where Peter's like, okay, I'll never sin again. That's it, I'm done. I'll never say anything stupid again. I'm done. I'll, I'll never doubt, I'll never question again. When you look at this morning on, this, on the shores of Galilee and, and the picture I have on the screen right now for those of you who are in the room, uh, this, I believe, is the shoreline, and I won't say this is the precise point, but this is the shoreline where Jesus stood that morning. It's a cloudy day when this picture was taken, but, but the sun would have been shining from the east if we can make a really lame illustration of, of using Rice Lake. If, if you go to City Park where we have our annual outdoor service, if, if you were on the shore uh, next to City Park and you look out to Centennial Island where all the fireworks are shot. So that's about 100 yards out from shore. The sun coming up in the east would have been shining toward Capernaum, toward these shores. And so Jesus called out to them. He's on the shore. They're 100 yards out. And Jesus said, children. In fact, some translations say, boys. Boys, do you have any fish? In fact, the New American Standard is, is pretty straight up on this. Uh, the implied is, don't have any fish, do you? And he wasn't mocking them. He just understood. And they said, no. It doesn't say how loud it was. I would have said, no, I've been up all night long. But they're, they're communicating back and forth on the water. Sounds bouncing off the water. They can hear one another. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. Don't know whose wheels were turning at this point in time, but you know, three years ago 
We did this once before on this same lake, just probably down the shore a little ways. Well, they did it. They did it. If you remember before, they've already got the boats ashore in Luke's account. And Peter's like, well, you're the Lord, so I'll, I'll go out. But if you've ever, if you've been in a, a, a profession, a vocation for a long time, don't you just hate it when somebody comes in and starts telling you all the wrong things you're doing when they have nothing to do and have never had anything to do with, with what you're doing? It's, it's frustrating when people come in and say, oh, I, I know the, what, what you ought to do differently. That's where Peter and the disciples are. The first time, Peter said, well, we know what we're doing. We've been out all night, but you're the master. And so they went. This time, there's no record that they complained at all. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. That's a promise. That's not, well, why don't you try something else instead? The fish are on the other side of the boat. And so they did what he said. And it says they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of the fish. We're, we're given the number in a moment. Again, at least some of these men were professional fishermen. You don't normally take counsel from laymen when you're a professional. But man, what did you have to lose? We've been all, out all night long. What's one more shot? And that disciple whom Jesus loved, who never mentions himself by name, he calls himself that other disciple, a couple of places, the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who put his head on Jesus' breast at supper. In this case, he also calls himself one of the sons of Zebedee. So John stays anonymous here. Remember the, the race to the tomb with Peter? John outran Peter. Peter's personality came out and he, he didn't stop and he went right into the empty tomb. John says, it's the Lord. That would be one of those statements that if, if you look all the way through Jesus' ministry, when you see the, the feeding of the multitudes, you're saying, it's the Lord. When you're seeing a miraculous healing, you're saying, it's the Lord. When you're seeing a discouraging time and not seeing him, from this end of the story, we're saying, it's the Lord. The good times, the bad times, the Godward response that comes out of his children, when I'm full of faith or when I'm full of skepticism, say, it's the Lord. He's brought me here for a purpose. John got it. Don't know for sure that he's the first one that, uh, whose mind these words came to, but he's the first one to speak. It is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I brought this up at other times uh, when, when we see Peter encountering the Lord Jesus and he may have been impetuous, impulsive, jumped, spoke whenever he had opportunity. But I'll take you back to another instance where the disciples, after the feeding of the multitudes, are in the middle of a storm and they saw Jesus walking those billows on top of those billows in the storm. They thought it was a ghost. They realized it was Jesus. And what does Peter do? 
Lord, if it's you, call, let me come in. Let me walk on the water with you. Because he's thinking, I'd rather be in the middle of the storm walking with Jesus than in this boat with these guys. And of course, you know, if you know the story, Peter started to sink. But remember, we can criticize Peter's faith, but, but keep this in mind. The other guys are still in the boat. And Peter's with Jesus in the middle of all of this. Please keep that in mind as we finish off this portion of the text. Peter knew no matter the circumstances, no matter the, the failure or success or whatever's going on, the best place for me to be is in the presence of Jesus. Mary Magdalene recognized that too, didn't she? As did the other women who fell at Jesus' feet after the resurrection. So here's Peter, and he realized, man, I, I don't, some Bibles use the word naked. I don't think Peter was naked, naked, but he's stripped for work. Uh, I don't think this is a matter of dress code for Jesus, but, but he's throwing his outer coat on. It's probably chilly in the water, and he's going to shore. So he is out of the boat in the water, pulling his outer cloak on. He's going after Jesus because that was the best place to be. He launched himself out and the other disciples came in the little boat. So there must have been a big one and a little one. I'm just guessing at the four and three division. It's just the way I do things, but I'm not a professional fisherman. They were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards away, uh, dragging the net full of the guys are probably saying, thanks, Peter. We, we've got a, it must have been tough rowing 100 yards to get over to the shore where they could get out of the boats. And Peter came to himself and, and went and helped them in a moment here. They were about 100 yards away dragging the net of fish. Two boats, just like in Luke's account. Difficult rowing. One man short now. They've only got six guys. Verses nine and 10 say, so when they got, out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. And, and you listen to sermons on this and they say, well, you, you put your part in, Jesus puts his part in and, and you get together. This is, this is not anti-grace. It is saying that the Lord Jesus says, you have responsibilities too. It is showing that he's already been fishing He's already has a meal prepared for his own and he wants to be with his people, right? He doesn't need them. He's not needy, but he wants to be with his people. When we come to the table of the Lord next week and we're, we're sharing in, in the special presence of the Lord, we're, we're, we're taking in the cup and the bread, this picture of the Lord Jesus calling us to remember his death until he comes, remembering we have his special presence now and it is his delight, not just ours. So the Lord had already caught breakfast and was cooking it and he invited the fishermen to add some of their catch to his own Simon and Peter went up and drew the net to land, so they're not just going to let the fish get loose and flop their way out. It says large fish. Uh, there were other times when there were, there were uh, musht, which were little fish that they caught on Galilee. These were probably some of the larger fish. Some people call them St. Peter's fish. We don't know for sure what kind. John just says they're big. They were large fish. And isn't it interesting that he doesn't say, man, we had a whole bunch of them. 
Because if you're in business, you have an accountant. You count what comes in. You count your expenses. And so 153 fish would have had a specific value. John's also telling us that because uh, in the providence of God, some people would say lucky, the net was not torn. So they're dragging these big fish to shore and they're not even going to have to mend their nets. This was a good day's work. John the fisherman recognized that. And so Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast, come and dine. Spend time with me. We're sharing this meal together. We're going to fellowship together. And by this time, I mean, is anybody saying, who, who is that again? They knew it was the Lord. None of them ventured to question him, John says. Who are you, knowing that it was the Lord? And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and the fish likewise. Now was the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Again, I, I'm not sure that we can uh, figure out exactly what day of the week this was or how long after the resurrection, but John does say, third time. Third time we saw him after the resurrection. They all knew that Jesus had come again to reinforce the truth of his resurrection in their minds. And I will point out, as we have as we have studied in our church, we've studied through 1 Corinthians and gotten to the end, and we talk a lot about the gospel here. Paul said, this is the gospel. People say, well, is the gospel just like the Bible? Paul said, the gospel is this message, that Christ died for our sins. Not just that Christ died, that he died for our sins. That means that his death actually did something for those for whom it was intended. When he says our sins, he's talking to the saints. Christ died for his church and that he was buried. That's evidence that he really died. There are people who, who believe that there was this phantom thing going on that he either didn't really die or they didn't really rise in a body. He died for sins as a sacrifice. He was buried. He truly was dead and he rose again in a body the third day according to the scriptures and Paul actually went on because the, the evidence of the resurrection from physical appearances, like this one, became part of the gospel message. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, Paul says, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. It's not saying you have to have physical evidence of the resurrection. Remember what Jesus said to Thomas. Blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believed. And yet, when we preach the gospel, we say, there are people who are willing to die for this message. They saw Jesus risen from the dead. It's true. The father accepted the sacrifice of his son. There is reasonable evidence that this is true and yet there's a blessedness to believing it even though we've never seen him we believe the word to go back to where we started i i took you through the bible and and looked at several instances and i started in the book of revelation what was the problem problem in ephesus 
There were so many good things about them. People claim to say, I'm an apostle. And in the first century, it's like, what's your calling card? Give evidence that you're an apostle. And then he said, I have this against you. Jesus, speaking to the church at Ephesus, you have, what? You've, you've left, left your first love. Doesn't even say why. But you'll notice what he says. He isn't saying, just, just pray that I come back. He's saying, I'm right here. I am right here in your midst. Turn around. That is the call. That is the call to people who are running. Turn around. It's the word repent. You turn toward him instead of away from him in hard times. What had happened in the case of Dan, Dan Barker is his name. A lot of you have heard of him. Uh, he, he had come to faith in a church setting, according to Dr. Burse, where there, it had been an evangelistic type setting and the preacher had said, come to Jesus, he'll save your hurting marriage. And so he came to the Jesus who saves all marriages and his marriage was failing and he was a pastor and he said, I don't want him. See, Jesus is not simply the Jesus who heals marriages because the truth is the things that we want in our hearts, we don't always get. He's not a genie that gives us what we want. He's the king. He's the holy one. He's only one to, to re the one to rescue you from you. The problem is me and the burden is on me and the rescue is standing there. Calling people to himself and when people come to him, even in all of their doubts, they take them to him. So the call when you're struggling is to realize who he is, to realize why he came, and to keep these things in mind. John 15, 5, Jesus said to his disciples, I'm the true vine. Apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5 says. That, that special presence was going to provide encouragement through, through the, the whole spectrum of Christian experience for these people who became followers of Christ. When he said, apart from me, you can do nothing, he sent them, he was preparing at this point to send them when he gave the great commission to go out and preach the gospel to every creature. And you remember what he said? And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The presence of Jesus is what these people needed. Even if they couldn't see him, he wanted that with his people. In Revelation chapter three, a little bit later in the chapter we read, he's talking to the church, not to an unbeliever. He's talking about the door to the church and he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, remember what he says? I, I, wanna, I wanna share this meal with you, church. Knocking at the door of his own church, he's saying, I want to be with you. The full spectrum from evangelism to living the Christian life to martyrdom. As Stephen is having stones thrown at him and he realizes he's about to breathe his last, what did he see? He looked up and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. It's his presence with his people through everything, through your doubts, through the hard times, through the joyous times, a Godward response in every instance is the right response, is the comforting response, is the instructive response 
Here's one reason to run toward him that we're learning from this text, and that is he meets you when you're confused. I'm not saying that they were fishing because they were confused, but I do think there must have been a a, a period of time where they're just not sure. Are we going to have to fish to support ourselves? What's going to happen? That's the confusion I'm talking about here. The comfort that he wants to be near you if you are his doesn't make him needy. It just reveals that he loves you. Isn't that what we're seeing in John over and over and over again? The call to believe is not an academic thing. The call to believe is a call to relationship. He meets you when you're confused. Don't run away from him and say, this makes no sense to me because my reason must be the final arbiter for what is true and what is false. Or is it possible that there are some things you didn't get yet, friend? He meets you when you're discouraged, when you just don't know what to believe. I mentioned John the Baptist at a very low point. You can say, well, boy, how could he possibly ask Jesus if he was the coming one or should we look for another? Well, at least he went to Jesus with his question. He didn't go to Herod. Failure, by the way, in what you're doing, and that's the discouragement I'm talking about in this morning because they had fished all night long. And if you've ever been in in business where your livelihood depended on making the sale, depended on getting the customer, depended on getting the production, and it's not coming, and you're having that down time, it's discouraging. And you're wondering, can I just work somewhere instead of running a business? Can I just have somebody pay me so I know there's going to be something there all the time. The point is not simply about being in business. The point is that failure, and they had failed. Failure is not always the result of sin. Failure is often God's means of teaching you that you are not self-sufficient. No matter how good you are at what you do, you need him And echoing you hear the words, apart from me, you can do nothing. And the words of the apostle, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. He meets you when you're discouraged. For that matter, he meets you when you succeed. (laughs) Through Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter eight, God told the nation of Israel, uh, Moses says, it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. God's called his people to work hard. The, the Christian work ethic is, is a, a wonderful thing and we ought to hold fast to that. But remember, there will be no fruit apart from his work. I said, Failure is not always the result of sin and fruit is not always the result of you just doing all the right things. When you fail to recognize his work, that doesn't mean it's not his work. Here they are in their failure and suddenly the Lord Jesus turns it from a bust to a boon. Everything is there. Was the delight in the 153 fish for these guys? This is a commercial for next Sunday. Come back because the Lord Jesus is going to take Peter back to the 153. He meets you when you succeed. It's his work. You praise him 
and delight in him when he's bolstering your income, when he's giving you more. Finally, he meets you when you're in need. And this is not simply talking about physical need or material need. He had fed a multitude just across this lake uh, a couple years earlier. The point is, Jesus is on the shore and, and this is not all about just talking and, and teaching. He's showing himself to them and look what he's done. This is, this is like, the, have you ever been in a home where you walk in and it's like, boy, these people are good to people. You're just welcome. As soon as you come in the door, it doesn't always have to be food, but it's, it's dry ground in a muddy world. This is here. Look what Jesus has done. The hospitality. He's got fish. He's got bread. He says, come and eat. Bring, bring some of yours here. We'll potluck it. And, and the fellowship with the Lord Jesus is something he's inviting them to find joy in. Just like he had fed a multitude on the other side of the lake, he actively serves his people. And in this instance, the disciples were in need of something more than just a market for 153 fish. They needed the presence of Jesus. So we pause here in this text because the story doesn't really end and, and God willing, we're, we're going to finish this next Sunday but the call is to ask you where you are with the Lord Jesus. Probably living in this country, you've heard the gospel message. You may have made profession of faith. You may be a church member, not a church member, but wherever you are, the first call is to see who Jesus is and what he has done. There's a rescue. There's a rescue that he provided for everyone who would believe, everyone who would turn. You realize you're an outsider you come to the Jesus who's been shown here. Well, we started out talking about, because this was about disciples who perhaps were discouraged, who were confused, who were wondering when Jesus is going to show up again. If you're there, the challenge is to realize that there's only one place to run and it's not away from him. He knows more than you do. He is more powerful than you. He loves you more than you can understand. You and I are more sinful than we could imagine. But, but more loved than we dare imagine, child of God. You know where to go. Let's pray.